So a whole day of practice that we've had together. For some of you, that's the longest time yet that you've spent on retreat. So congratulations. And to all of you, really, a, a, a very um, heartfelt appreciation from me, and I'm sure I speak for all of us up here for the sincerity of your effort today and uh, your attention and uh, everything that we've been doing and the way that each of you just by showing up offers your support to everyone else you know this retreat wouldn't be happening without each of you your interest and your willingness And last night we we kind of posed the question of uh, what intentions you might be bringing with you for the retreat, or what your what your purpose is in being here. And you might just take a moment to feel into that again, and and you might find that it's possibly shifted or clarified itself over the last twenty four hours, or new threads of meaningfulness have come to you. Or it might be that you arrived yesterday with a clear sense of why you were here and today you really can't find that anymore. Thinking, what on earth am I here for? But it's really good to keep connecting with our intention. And uh, thinking of Gaia House in many ways, you might not use this kind of language to yourself, but a place of pilgrimage. We come here for a really, really serious purpose to uh, nurture the things that are most precious to us. Is that felt as a as a prayer, or as an inquiry, as an act of devotion? Is it an act of healing, of self-preservation, <laughs> of world preservation, mm-hmm. an experiment, a kamikaze experiment? But whatever feels true to you about it in this moment, you know, can you can you sense uh, the loving intention? Is it possible to feel a loving intention within that? And then you'll notice also that I've relit our three candles. And maybe take a moment to just feel into now, let your body feel into this question of on whose behalf are you here now? (laughs) 
On behalf of whom are you undertaking this journey? And maybe some very specific answers come to you and maybe again some that are more general and extensive and maybe kind of uh, half formed. I hope in there somewhere that included yourself. And to the extent that we are here on behalf of ourself, are there any bits of yourself that you might be leaving out of the equation? Which bits of ourself might we sometimes not want to own or ignore or as we also said yesterday might we feel uh, unwelcome here can we be here on behalf of those too we also need our own generosity and our own kindness our own altruism And when you, when you reflect in this way, when you connect with your greater sense of purpose and those on whose behalf you might be here, what's that like? How is it to feel that intention? Does it feel helpful in any way? There's a story I, I heard which I like um, about a parish priest called Father Theophane. And uh, at least I think, that's, I think that's actually the name of the priest in the story. As he's the recounter of the story as well. And he's a parish priest who... Uh, also practices meditation in one of the Buddhist traditions practice meditation in one of the Buddhist traditions and I think it was in a Buddhist tradition anyway he went on a, a long retreat something like this one or longer retreat he was on a he was on a meditation retreat and the teacher in this um, tradition taught only by asking people questions so all he did, so it sounds like a Zen monastery, but I'm not 100% sure it was a Zen monastery. But anyway, this, this teacher's method of teaching is only to ask questions. And there's this kind of busy, overworked parish priest goes on his personal retreat. And he says to the 
to the monk, please give me a question to guide my practice. And so the monk says, okay, here's your question. Your question is, what do they need? So he goes away and he contemplates this question, lets answers come to him. And then a few days later, it's his next interview and he goes back and he says, well, that was interesting, you know, had some useful insights, but I, I'm not sure that you understood my question. It's like, I'm, I'm here for my personal retreat and I'd like a question to support my practice. And so the monk says, ah, oh, okay. In that case, your question is, what do they really need? <laughs> And this is this this you know profound understanding that um, in many ways and maybe really in all ways our practice is more fruitful when it's undertaken as an offering of ourselves rather than a trying to get something for ourselves. And so thinking about this altruistic intention also. It seems to me that when it's difficult to abide, and I know that uh, there are many things that it's difficult to abide with and that some of those we've been encountering today, one little question that you could ask yourself is, on whose behalf might I be willing to stay just a little bit more? And it may be that that brings some sense of possibility, some sense of courage, some sense of strength, motivation. And this is tapping into what's called in Buddhism the motivation of bodhicitta, the heart and the mind that is committed to waking up for the welfare of all beings. And it's a great source of strength and empowerment. But then also sometimes, you know, thinking of others feels like too much of a too much of a demand, too much of a stretch. And then that tends to be a sign that there's there's things that we need to attend to here for ourselves before we're ready, before we have the capacity to um, include the other again. And that's a perfectly legitimate um, development of the heart that we also, we, we're learning to balance. We're not learning to prioritize, you know, one or the other. So this training is about tending to all beings equally without leaving ourselves out. So the last retreat I just taught here with Catherine's husband, Yanai, was partly on self-compassion which is a very kind of non-traditional Buddhist thing to be doing because we talk a lot about non-self, but recognizing that for many of us, actually, this is our our kind of difficulty is attending to ourselves. We're so trained to think that compassion means um, looking after the other, 
compassion for others, but actually this self is equally important, equally in need of our attention. So sometimes if this altru- sometimes this altruistic motivation feels empowering and encouraging, inspiring, and sometimes it's too much and this is a sign that some rebalancing is needed. But the Buddha said many times and in many places that uh, in taking care of others, we take care of ourselves. And how do we take care of ourselves? We take care of others. So these two things are absolutely inseparable. Bodhicitta is a kind of universal uh, quality or aspiration. So I've been listening recently to some teachings from a um, Zimbabwean traditional healer and peacemaker um, who led a retreat for uh, some Dharma friends of mine. And he says that we're all uh, peacemakers and healers in training. Think of yourself as a peacemaker and a healer in training. What we do when we're in training is we, we try to, we often, we, we, we hear of, we, we know of these beautiful qualities such as compassion or loving kindness or generosity and we kind of try to pump them out of ourselves, to squeeze them out of ourselves. And that can be very difficult and uh, you know, not, uh, not a um, helpful approach to take. And so one of the things that I think is useful is to recognize that they grow, they tend to grow naturally out of the soil of uh, an appropriate understanding and intention. If the understanding is right and the intention is right, then these things will naturally start to arise. So these two, and in fact, these two qualities of um, understanding and and intention or view, our way of seeing things and intention, some of you might recognize as the first two factors of the the Buddha's Eightfold Path. They're the very kind of beginning ingredients, if you like, of practice. So there, there are many things one could say about these these subjects, but just to touch on a few aspects of them that feel really pertinent in terms of the view or the understanding, the the kind of um, a way of looking at the world, it's really helpful to recognize that nothing is separate from us. We've been kind of pointing the attention towards that in the meditations that we've done today. Our being our very being is a gift of nature. And we tend to think of nature as the stuff out in the garden. You know, but nature is also right here in these bodies, hearts and minds. And actually everything in this room, from the chairs to the radiators to the speakers and the sound system, they're all extracted from and at some point, maybe a very long point hence, we'll go back to nature. None of it is separate. Nothing that is arising here is outside of this matrix of uh, the natural world. 
And that can be very helpful also to recognize that all these processes of delusion and confusion and revelation and discovery and aspiration in our hearts and minds are also processes in, in nature that are following natural laws of cause and effect. So recognizing that we're all um, intimately connected with all the world around us and that our actions have an impact on the world around us. Our actions have consequences. So this is a really intrinsic part of right understanding or right perspective or view as the, as the Buddha taught it. And we're seeing the consequences now in our world of our failure to recognize that and our abuse of the natural world and we also we also find ourselves abusing ourselves don't we in these even in these very small ways of bullying or criticizing judging ourselves or taking ourselves for granted or ignoring ourselves so one of the things we're doing with uh, bringing our attention home is to to stop ignoring ourselves. I think this is one of the, the big um, learnings, journeys, discoveries on my, my own path of practice is recognizing the extent to which I've neglected myself with my attention or aspects of myself. myself. I think we all do this in different, different ways. And so part of our meditation practice is to bring the attention to those aspects of ourselves and our lives that we neglected. This is why we're, we, we're practicing this art of staying here, staying with ourselves and returning to ourselves. And we take ourselves for granted, you know, and uh, I'm, I've been, I'm finding a lot at this particular stage in my life of noticing the changes that happen in the body and so on, how very much when I was younger, my attitude to the body was kind of, what can I get, a, get away with? You know, well, not what's for the long-term welfare and benefit of this body, but you know, how much body abuse can I get away with? You know? Sometimes we do that in the ethical domain as well. How, what behaviors can I get away with? I, there's something that's not really there for our long-term happiness and welfare. Yeah. The, really the question, and, and you know, we learn this often through, through suffering, through suffering in the body, through suffering in our mind. We need to ask ourselves this more long-term question. What does this body, heart and mind really need for its welfare? So when I say we often abuse ourselves or we, we abuse nature, actually we could say, you know, this we is maybe taking too much, taking this too, too personally. We have the responsibility, but actually it's the qualities or the, dif the, 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 the um, energies of greed, hatred and delusion in the mind that abuse nature and abuse the body and these are there in the mind and our meeting of them our managing of them our feeding of them our non-feeding of them is our responsibility but then there are also these beautiful qualities that can arise in the mind that we can also feed and nurture and 
we can also just as we can abuse we can be the conduits of of healing and of peace and of happiness if we learn to plant and water these seeds of compassion and wisdom in ourselves and this is the work that we're doing here on this and every other retreat and of course the difficulty though you know this is kind of yeah we we all sort of get the program but the difficulty isn't it is remembering <laughs> it's remembering our intentions remembering what we're doing and so last night we 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 um talked about and reaffirmed the the precepts these um commitments to certain behavioral norms that we that we have as part of this training and what they do is they contain our impulses and our habits you know um within an expre- as an expression of uh qualities of uh non-greed non-hatred and delusion so that our minds have a chance to catch up if you like so our impulses and our habits are restrained and contained and our minds can come into alignment so if you think about the the five precepts the precept of harmlessness the first one of of respecting life is an expression of compassion in action and not taking what's not offered is an expression of generosity and unselfishness in action of loving kindness when we practice contentment or appreciation again another aspect of not taking what's not offered or not asking for more than's given than is given then that's a, that's an expression of appreciative joy in action and non-addiction non-reactivity are an expression of equanimity in action so our behavior can be aligned with our good intentions even if the mind and the thoughts haven't quite caught up with it So these 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 four things again are the uh expression of what are known as the brahma viharas the abidings of the um of the loving heart you like the brahma is actually uh divine or sublime um brahma is one of the 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 highest of the heavenly realms and a uh, buddhist cosmology they're also called the immeasurable abidings and the boundless abidings so the domain of of love without reservation or demands and as i said there are these four aspects there's the basic the first of them is this quality of friendliness metta goodwill metta is the pali word m e t t a um it means goodwill or friendliness sometimes translated as loving kindness and then loving kindness or friendliness encounters different things it encounters when it encounters suffering it becomes compassion the second of the qualities karuna uh karuna is also um expressed as the trembling of the heart in response to suffering we notice that how we we resonate with the suffering and the difficulties of others and there's something that wells up in the heart that wants to reach out and respond people have been talking about friends who are ill and wanting to do things to help that's a classic uh, impulse of karuna 
And then also, you know, sometimes the friendly heart meets people in a state of um, good fortune or rejoicing. And then what it does is it can rejoice with them. You know, if the heart is cramped and contracted, what it generally does is it kind of tries to dismiss or diminish the happiness of the other. Somehow we get into this mode of thinking there's not enough to go round and if that person's happy, it means, you know, I'm never going to have that, I'm never going to be happy. So the opposite quality is the quality of envy. It wants to take away other people's happiness. But this quality of mudita, of appreciative joy, it actually can rejoice in other people's happiness. And the stroppy and grumpy and deprived bits of us that want to take away the happiness from the, the happy bits of us can also rejoice in our own happiness and come, come aboard. So this altruistic joy is also applies to ourselves as well. And then the fourth one is the quality of equanimity. So equanimity is the ability to stay in contact with experience, to stay sensitive and to abide, but to recognize our inability to control outcomes. So it's that which allows people to be, allows people's experience to be their own. It respects the autonomy of the other and it respects, um, it respects respectful of nature, really. There's not, um, you know, there's a, there's a finite amount to, to what our efforts to intervene in things can accomplish. We'll pick these up and talk about them more over the next few days. But these, these seeds of intention um, create, this is, this is what's known as karma. So that they, they produce ripples in the matrix of events. And the trouble is that often the, the ripples that are produced are so, they're so, um, the causes and conditions that lead to the arising of events and experiences are so complex that we find it difficult to trace a line between our good intentions and our uh, good actions and actually the outcome. It can sometimes seem like, you know, people who uh, the, have the most uh, unpleasant intentions and unpleasant behavior meet with a lot of good fortune and uh, we might... Uh, do things very, with a very good heart and good things and actually it seems like nothing nothing goes right. A friend of mine you know, used to say all the time that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> you might have encountered that experience in your life but it's not actually true. When we look at the, the effect in the heart and the mind of the abiding that it's adopting now, we can actually feel the consequences here of an unpleasant or an unwholesome intention and a good intention. And if we don't actually feel it in the moment, we, we can actually see in the course of our lives how we wear grooves of habit into the mind. Everything we do is reinforcing a habit. So which habits do we want to inhabit? It's not a mistake that these words come from the same root. We're building a home all the time. We can make our home in greed and aversion and delusion. And often those qualities feel like home. It's like react reactivity feels like the easy path or following a habit feels like the easy path. Feels like a pleasant abiding because it feels familiar. 
But when we start to really sense what's happening or to look at the consequences of some of our behavior, we realize that actually, you know, that immediate sense of familiarity and ease isn't necessarily the most skillful abiding. I think one of our problems with good intentions, intentional actions, especially the intentions of kindness and compassion, and this is just where I want to go the last last sort of part of these reflections. There's so much that one could say about these subjects, but I don't want to overload you. Is that we expect to see results. I think we confuse our good wishing with an investment in the outcome. And if you think about it, if we, if we t- were to really trust that actually our only job is to take care of the intention and we're not really responsible for the outcome because it's out of our control, how much difference would that make? And that's not to say that we don't, as we form an intention or we undertake an intentional action, we don't think about the impact of that action, that that's a factor. You know, we want to be alert to what we know about the possible outcome of our actions. But actually beyond that, there's not much we can do. The more we're just resting in the intention, the more opportunity we have to course correct our actual choices Uh, and not to get glued to a particular line of action even when it's no longer appropriate. I'm not thinking of anything in particular here. But, um, you know, we we actually to, to really stay tuned to what's the intention here behind this. So if you, if you think, for example, of um, what, you know, how does it feel? This is, thinking particularly in terms of the first quality of friendliness or loving kindness. How does it feel to wish a friend well? How does that, you know, when you, when you think of just a, a spontaneous arising of friendliness towards some, maybe you've had an experience today of just a friendly connection or interaction with someone. Somebody, uh, a friend comes to mind and just that little, of, oh, I wish you well arises and then what does that feel like when that happens but we want something from somebody in return there's disappoint yeah there's dis- there can be disappointment if it doesn't arise or there's something there's a kind of put for me there's a kind of pulling back out of that so I, I'm not really you know I'm not really just, there isn't a freedom in that offering of goodwill. There there becomes an investment in it. Like, for example, you know, or another example would be um, having the impulse and the wish to send a gift to a friend or a card or a present, say, for somebody's birthday. And there's this kind of joyfulness, isn't there, that arises with a, an impulse to do something generous and and uh, and uh, gladdening, and you just said, "Oh yeah, great! I'm going to you know express to this person how much I care for them." And then, 
and we send that off and then it can tip into worry have they received it haven't they received it what are they going to think of it you know how are they going to respond have they sent me a text yet to say thank you and again you know what was a beautiful heartfelt impulse that actually is a very joyful thing to experience tips into something that becomes you know anxiety and and stress and this is of course is a fairly trivial example but actually this this happens you know with the less trivial things as well and so that um the the wishing well to people can tip into a wanting to control the outcome so I'm thinking also in terms of, of teaching and uh, this sense of you know, when I when I get real joy from from doing what I do is when I want to share um, the best things that I've experienced or that I experience or you know what brings me joy with all of you and I imagine I mean from the very beginning of my practice and this might be the case for you you know you have a you have a beautiful experience or an insight and something wants to share it it's like you want to go and tell everybody about it or you start fantasizing about when you become a teacher and you can share all this and there's a kind of we we have like children do you know often children they want to come and show you what they've been given or share it with you and so we have this so you know this arises sometimes in t- okay i i would love to i would love to share this and then it can tip into m- somehow me trying to micromanage your experience so that you can have the same experience or that you can get what i mean or so that you know you think you think well of what's being said yeah so it just it, the the joy subsides and it becomes a it becomes a matter of stress and tension again and really you will have the experience that you have and it's not my job to micromanage that that's disrespectful to all of you and if i go a step further and i'm trying to kind of control you to protect my well-being then you know that's at best selfish and it's at worst it's abusive So actually, we could just put all that piece down. We could. So we want to care and be caring, but we don't want to become careworn. And we can be concerned, but we don't want the concern to tip in the t- to the type of concern that's anxiety. Or our empathy or compassion to tip into compassion fatigue so Mathieu Ricard who's the the French translator of the Dalai Lama a monk who's written many books and has been, participated in many of these experiments with neuroscientists who designated him as the happiest man in the world he he has some <laughs> not quite how they measure all that but anyway he's he's been a, a tibetan buddhist monk for many decades and lived very closely with the dalai lama and um he ha- he teaches about um compassion and empathy and you know this is an area we different people use these words with in different ways but he draws a distinction between empathy which is the ability to to feel to resonate along with uh, another's suffering and compassion 
which actually is that capacity and which includes the wish to help but it's that capacity unhooked from the from the need to control the outcome it's like i will help you to the best extent of my abilities and respecting that the outcome of this is beyond my control and that is how he defines um, this quality of compassion which makes sense in the context of these four qualities of these immeasurable abidings compassion is not none of them are separate from each each other so compassion is not separate from the quality of equanimity which um, recognizes that things will be as they are and also equanimity is not separate from the quality of compassion so equanimity is not an indifference it's a caring uh, kind of equanimity and so that that you know there's a link there between compassion the kuan yin piece and the and the wisdom piece the buddha piece and it, you know of course the buddha was uh, also an archetype of compassion and kuan yin actually is also an archetype of wisdom so I don't want to dichotomize between them too much Yeah, and a, a lot of us are feeling at the moment, you know, so impacted by all the things that are going on in the world. Well, been impacted all our lives, but it's just that this is kind of rising up in the public consciousness to a level that I, I think in my lifetime is un, unprecedented, at least in this culture and this country. And we can feel really, really overwhelmed as to how do we respond and what do we do. And it seems to me that the only way to stay in contact and to stay engaged in life without being overwhelmed by anxiety, consumed by anxiety, is to start really attending to this sense of intention, being all we can do our intentional best endeavors we need to bring forth but actually the outcome the outcomes are going to be beyond our control and this may be something that we want to share with and to teach our younger people and our children if we have them and to pass on to next the next generations who are also going to have to meet uh, unprecedented challenges how do we stay human in the midst of all this how do we we stay in touch with these qualities without being overwhelmed by anxiety there's a certain kind of humility here to having to recognize that we can do this this is our job recognize what is our job and what is not our job here so Greta Thunberg is asking us to panic and uh, I appreciate her message and I also think for me panic is not a very helpful image it's like there's an ancient Greek proverb that says make haste slowly and that to me is kind of where I want to be because in order to respond and to be available we need to know how to abide so the abiding is the slowly and the turning outwards and the engaging is the making haste, but we can't make haste without s slowing down. It's kind of it's kind of ironic that we kind of need to 
hurry up to save a world that's actually dying of too much hurrying? <laughs> Can we slow down? Can we make haste slowly? There's a, uh, one of my favorite sayings, which uh, somebody recently traced back to me, uh, for, back for me to a peace activist in dialogue with Thich Nhat Hanh, or around the time, or maybe it's a peace activist who Thich Nhat Hanh quoted about the way to peace. And when Thich Nhat Hanh was um, working as a peace activist during the Vietnam War, and somebody asked him, what's the way to peace? And he used this quote from uh, peace activist A.J. Muster. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. And just, you know, so you can sense, is that true in your own inner experience? How, how are you finding, in the moments when you do find a way to peace in the midst of the the hurricanes and the tempests that take place on your meditation cushion. <laughs> Is that not true? And if it's true internally, how about externally? So I'm finding it so um, frustrating, the conversations, that, uh, the arguments that are being bandied around today you know that go along the lines of we have to reunite this divided country and this argument that in order to reunite a divided country we have to defeat our opponents we have to attack and defeat our opponents our fellow countrymen who happen to be of a different view or of opinion luckily in so far mostly we don't attack them physically but we attack them verbally and somehow there's this kind of crazy human belief that that is going to reunite everybody <laughs> so yeah i don't want to please um sorry i don't want to get you all political just here but just to illustrate this point of craziness. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Uh, so this this other approach, it really, I don't think it works and I don't think it will ever work. Uh, we have to find an alternative and our alternative begins here in this, in this abiding. And so our purpose really this weekend and in this practice is not to teach you so much to do something, but to connect with something that's already here. So Baba Mandaza, this Zimbabwean um, healer who I mentioned earlier, he says that we have to learn to channel peace and healing instead of bringing offerings, we have to become the offering. And he said, you're not peacemakers. None of us are peacemakers. Even Mahatma Gandhi was not a peacemaker. Otherwise, he'd have succeeded in making peace or we'd have succeeded in making peace long ago. We're not peacemakers we're peace receivers. We receive peace from above 
we receive peace from below and our job is to deliver it we're peace we're not peacemakers we're peace receivers we receive peace from above and from below and we can deliver it we're messengers of peace not peacemakers Let's just rest a moment with that thought. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.